And good afternoon. It's 4 o'clock. Thanks for tuning in to CFRC 101.9 FM. We are located here in Lower Carruthers Hall, Queen's University, Kingston, Ontario. My name is Bruce, and this is Finding a Voice, spoken word programming here every Friday afternoon from 4 to 6 o'clock. We do stream live online as well at www.cfrc.ca. And coming up on the show today in the first hour, uh, from the March 12th Creative Writing at Queen's Reading and Q&A series held in Watson Hall, room 517, uh, with Ian Reed as this month's feature, you'll hear him reading from... Uh, I believe it was his two latest books. I'm thinking of Ending Things and Foe to begin the hour. And then the reading was followed by a Q&A that fills the remainder of the hour. It actually runs a few minutes into the second hour today. So in the second hour, uh, following a few minutes of Ian Reed's Q&A, uh, you're going to hear from then the March 5th and the Journey Continues open mic reading in that monthly series. And you'll hear readings by Judith Popiel, Aaron Boyce, Sasha Hill, and Ken Chin. This first, though, usual hourly announcement, occasionally some poetry, spoken word, or music played on this show uh, may contain strong language, but all is played in its entirety with content unedited to honor the creative integrity of both the author and the piece. I think I have a bit of time at the end of the second hour today to share a few upcoming events. We'll see how that goes. So let's go ahead and just jump into it first again from the March 12th Creative Writing at Queen's Reading and Q&A series held in Watson Hall, room 517. Ian Reed was uh, <clears throat> this month's feature, and you're going to hear him reading from his latest books uh, called I'm Thinking of Ending Things and Foe to Begin the Hour, and then a really, uh, uh, wonderful and quite lengthy Q&A. Uh, that fills the remainder of the hour, and as I already said, runs into the second. This event is organized and hosted by Carolyn Smart, so let's just follow her as she introduces the event. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the second reading this term in a continuing reading series presented by Creative Writing at Queen's. I'm very grateful to the Department of English who provided the funding for this reading. We'll listen to the author read their work and then finish with a relaxed question and answer session. To begin, we would like to acknowledge that the land on which we gather is a traditional territory of the Anishinaabe and Haudenosaunee peoples. When we perform a land acknowledgement, we make what is invisible, visible. We add multiple perspectives and diverse voices into the conversation of how we interact with our world. This act of naming, of inviting something into language, is a principle of advocacy we can all engage with, primary to us as writers, readers, and literary people. And on the note of literary people, I'm just adding into my introduction a moment to remember two uh, Canadian authors who've died in the last week. Joe Rosenblatt, a wonderful, original, creative genius from the West Coast who wrote wild sound poetry and performance poetry. Um, and also the great, the, the really outstandingly wonderful Patrick Lane. And I, we will miss them hugely, but at least we have their work to look back on, and we are grateful for that. In an article and interview for Vice, they say this about our guest. 
the soft-spoken writer from Kingston, Ontario, had authored two warmly received memoirs before his creepy marvel of a 2016 <laughs> debut novel, I'm Thinking of Ending Things, suddenly became an unsettling sensation. Soon, a buzz-bathed read was earning comparisons to Stephen King. His first book was snatched up for a Netflix adaptation by Oscar-winning director Charlie Kaufman, and he sold the film rights to his spellbinding second novel, Foe, months before it was out. Reads so suddenly swamped, he finally bought a cell phone. <laughs> it's my pleasure to introduce that man to you today. Ian Reed is a Queen's graduate, and in fact, I'm thrilled to say he is a graduate of one of the creative writing courses we offer. He initially established his writing career by publishing articles and columns in national magazines and newspapers following graduation. He drew the attention of the National Post, garnering a weekly column assignment, and by 2015, he began publishing in The New Yorker. His first memoir, One Bird's Choice, A Year in the Life of an Overeducated, Unemployed, 20-something Who Moves Back Home, was published in 2010 and was followed by The Truth About Luck, what I learned on my road trip with Grandma in 2013. Both memoirs were published by the House of Anansi Press. Ian won the RBC Taylor Emerging Writer Award in 2015, and in 2016, his debut novel, I'm Thinking of Ending Things, was published with terrific critical and commercial success. And as I noted earlier, it is currently being adapted into a film for Netflix directed by Charlie Kaufman, who you will know for films such as Being John Malkovich, Adaptation, and Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind. Ian's second novel, Foe, was published by Simon & Schuster in 2018. The film rights have been purchased by anonymous content. And Ian has traveled all the way from downtown Kingston to be with us here today. Please join me in welcoming him. Thank you, and that is worth acknowledging because for me, um, you know, the chance to, to do a, a reading and a talk uh, when I also get to use my own pillow at night is, is amazing. So uh, both the walk here, but also just being able to sleep in my own bed last night um, is different than usual. So yeah, uh, thank you all for uh, coming today. Um, it's really nice to be invited here back to Queens, uh, particularly with uh, with, with Carolyn, and, and we just were visiting with her class a little bit briefly before, and uh, for me that's such a, uh, a pleasure to do that. I, I, as you heard, I did, I studied with her here, um, and that, that for me that year was one of the, the very beginning um, moments for me when I had developed a, a true taste for writing and, and really that sense of excitement for writing. Um, and, you know, I think often now when I have gone to promote a book or talk about a book, um, it, what I do find happens a lot is people uh, mention uh, Queens and Carolyn uh, and her, her reputation around Canada um, really is uh, one, of the, one of the best teachers, if not the best, I think, uh, in Canada for creative writing. So it's really lucky that Queens has her um, and, and the students who've come, come through the program who've, who've had a chance to work with her. So uh, really special to be invited back here um, and see her again. Um, and just the, the this this you know this building, the English department. I, I took English as well, so for me, it's kind of nice to be to be back and um, and be here. So, otherwise, I, you know, I don't think I need to explain a whole lot or give you much 
detail um, about I'm gonna what I'm gonna do is uh, I'll read a little bit from each each of these books. Um, I don't think they need uh, a whole lot of introduction. I think it's always better to maybe not talk too much about it. Um, it's, it has been sort of a I think a bit of an interesting route to get here for these books. Um, having written nonfiction before these uh, and, and, and having written the type of book that those were, which were kind of more humorous, and, and these ones being a little more unsettling. Um, I think for me that was partially I wanted to do something I'd never done before, and, and I, I, was, I was attracted to books like this. I, I use myself uh, as a reader as my sort of gauge, I think, with writing. That's all, all I know how to do is, is to, to think about the books I like to read um, and, and, and try and, and write something like that. Um, so this book really, I, I think in many things, my first novel kind of goes back to some of the philosophy I'd studied while I was at Queens here, some of the ideas I was introduced to that for me were very unsettling. And, and not in a way that I think we often see in, in horror movies, um, more, more metaphysical. Um, and, and this book is about a young couple who live in a sort of university-like town, much like Kingston. Um, and they've been dating for not very long, you know, only about five or six weeks. And she's thinking of ending things. She's thinking about breaking up with her boyfriend, um, whose name is Jake. And he's, he's a postdoc in biochemistry at the university, and he's very smart. And she likes him. She likes him a lot, and she finds him very appealing in a lot of ways. Um, but she's also thinking probably the relationship has run its course. And so she's feeling guilty because as the book starts, um, she's agreed to go on this road trip with him to visit his parents on their farm. Um, and I would say the book takes a bit of an ominous turn when they reach their destination, the farm. Um, so I'm going to just read a little bit. I'm going to read a little bit from the, near the beginning, not right at the beginning, but near the beginning when they are on this road trip together. Um, and they, the story starts, they set out on this road trip, and the first third of the book really takes place in the car, and it's about them talking and interacting. And uh, I think that this young woman who's dating Jake, it's, she's the narrator, so she's the one telling the story, and it's told in the first person. Um, otherwise, I don't think there's a whole lot you need to know. So basically, she's kind of thinking some stuff, and they're having a discussion as they drive, and they're getting kind of deeper and deeper into remote farmland. I think a lot of what we learn about others isn't what they tell us. It's what we observe. People can tell us anything they want. As Jake pointed out once, every time someone says, pleased to meet you, they're actually thinking something different, making some judgment. Feeling, quote, pleased is never exactly what they're thinking or feeling, but that's what they say, and we listen. Jake told me our relationship has its own valence. Valence, that's the word he used. If that's true, then relationships can change from one afternoon to evening, from hour to hour. Lying in bed is one thing. When we eat breakfast together, and when it's early, we don't speak a lot. I like to talk, even just a bit. It helps me wake up, especially if the conversation is funny. Nothing wakes me up like a laugh. Really, even just one big laugh, as long as it's sincere. It's better than caffeine. Jake prefers to eat his cereal or toast 
and read, mostly in quiet. He's always reading. At first, I thought he was quiet at breakfast because he was so into whatever book he was reading. I could understand that, though it's not how I operate. I would never read this way. I like to know I have a good bit of time set aside for reading, to really get into the story. I don't like reading and eating, not together. <laughs> but it's the reading, just for the sake of it, that I find irritating. And Jake will read anything, a newspaper, a magazine, a cereal box, a crappy flyer, a takeout menu, anything. Hey, do you think secrets are inherently unfair or bad or immoral in a relationship? I ask. Jake's caught off guard. He looks at me and then back to the road. I don't know. It would depend on the secret. Is it significant? Is there more than one secret? How many are there? And what is being hidden? All relationships have secrets, though, don't you think? Even in lifelong relationships and 50-year marriages, there are secrets. On the fifth morning we had breakfast together, I stopped trying to start up a discussion. I didn't make any jokes. I sat. I ate. Cereal, Jake's brand. I looked around the room. I watched him. I observed. I thought, this is good. This is how we really get to know each other. He was reading a magazine. There was a faint white film or residue under his bottom lip, more concentrated in the corners of his mouth. This happened most mornings, this white lip film. After he showered, it was usually gone. Was it toothpaste? Was it from breathing out of his mouth all night? When he read, he chewed very slowly, as if to conserve energy, as if concentrating on the words slowed his ability to swallow. Sometimes there was a long delay between the last revolution of his jaw and what he would swallow. He'd wait for a bit and then dig out another overflowing spoonful from his bowl, holding it up absentmindedly. I thought he might drip milk onto his chin. Each spoon was that full. But he didn't. He got all into his mouth without a single drip. He rested the spoon in the bowl and wiped at his chin, even though there was nothing on it. It was all done distractedly. His jaw is very taut and muscular, even now, even while sitting driving. How can I stop myself from thinking about eating breakfast with him 20 or 30 years from now? Would he still get that white residue every day? Would it be worse? Does everyone in a relationship think about this stuff? Sometimes post-eating, usually if it's a large meal, his body makes sounds like a cooling car after a long drive. I can hear liquids shifting through small spaces. I hate to dwell on these things. They're unimportant and banal. But now's the time to think about them before this relationship gets any more serious. This makes me crazy, though, right? I'm crazy for thinking about this stuff. Jake is smart. He'll be a full professor before long, full tenure, all that. This stuff's appealing. He's tall. He has his clum clumsy physical appeal. All things I would have wanted in a husband when I was younger. Checks in all the boxes. I'm just not sure what any of this means now that I'm watching him eat his cereal and hearing his body make hydraulic noises. Do you think your parents have secrets? I ask. Absolutely. I'm sure they do. They'd have to, he says. The weirdest part, and it's some pretty unalloyed irony, as Jake would say, is that I can't say anything to him about my doubts. 
They have everything to do with him, and he's the one person I'm not comfortable talking to about them. I won't say anything until it's over. I can't. What I'm questioning involves both of us. It affects both of us, yet I can only decide alone. What does that say about relationships? Another in a long line of early relationship contradictions. Why all the questions about secrets, he asks. No reason, I say, just thinking. Maybe I should simply enjoy this trip, not overthink it, get out of my own head, have fun, let things happen naturally. I don't know what this means, let things happen naturally, but I've heard it over and over. People say it to me a lot about relationships. Isn't that what we're doing? I'm letting myself consider these thoughts. It's natural. I'm not going to prevent doubts from blooming. Wouldn't that be more unnatural? I ask myself what my reasons are for ending things and have trouble coming up with anything substantial. But how can you not ask this question in a relationship? What's here to keep it going, to make it worthwhile? Mostly, I just think I'd be better off without Jake. That makes more sense than going on. I'm not certain, though. How can I be certain? I've never broken up with a boyfriend before. Most relationships I've been in were like a carton of milk reaching its expiration date. It gets to a certain point and just sours, not inducing sickness, but enough to notice a change in flavor. Maybe instead of wondering about Jake, I should be questioning my ability to experience passion. This could all be my fault. Even when it's cold like this, if it's clear, Jake's saying, I don't mind. You can always bundle up. There's something about the deep cold that's refreshing. Summer's better, I say. I hate being cold. We still have at least another month of, before spring, and it's going to be a long month. I saw Venus without a telescope one summer, he says. It's such a Jake thing to say. It was one night around sunset. It wasn't going to be visible from Earth, again, for more than 100 years. It was this very rare planetary alignment that coordinated the Sun and Venus so you could see it as a tiny black dot when it passed between Earth and the Sun. It was really cool. If I'd known you then, you could have told me about it, I say. I missed out. Well, that's the thing. No one seemed to care, he says. It was so strange. A chance to see Venus, and most people were watching TV. No offense if that's what you were doing. I know Venus is the second planet from the sun. I don't know much beyond that. Do you like Venus, I ask? Sure. Why? What do you like about it? One day on Venus is like 115 Earth days. Its atmosphere is made up of nitrogen and carbon dioxide, and it has an iron core. It's full of volcanoes and solidified lava. I should know its orbital, or, orbital velocity, but I'd be making it up. That's pretty good, I'd say. But what I like most is that apart from the sun and moon, it's the brightest object in the sky, he says. Most people don't know that. I like when he talks like this. Were you always interested in space? I don't know, he says. I guess so. In space, everything has its relative position. Space is an entity, right, but also limitless. It's less dense the farther out you go 
but you can always keep going. There's no definitive border between the start and the end. We'll never fully understand or know it. We can't. You don't think? Dark matter makes up the majority of all matter, and it's still a mystery. Dark matter. It's invisible. It's all the extra mass we can't see that makes the formation of galaxies and the rotational velocities of stars around galaxies mathematically possible. I'm glad we don't know everything, I say. You're glad? That we don't know all the answers, that we can't explain it all, like space. Maybe we're not supposed to know all the answers. Questions are good. Uh, they're better than answers. If, if you want to know more about life, how we work, how we progress, it's questions that are important. That's what pushes and stretches our intellect. Uh, I think questions make us feel less lonely and more connected. It's not always about knowing. I appreciate not knowing. Not knowing is human. That's how it should be. It's like space. It's unsolvable and it's dark, I say, but not entirely. He laughs at this, and I feel silly for saying what I said. I'm sorry, he said. I'm not laughing at you. It's just funny. I haven't heard anyone say, I haven't heard anyone say it like that before. But it's true, isn't it? Yeah. It's dark, but not entirely. It's true, he says. And that's kind of a nice idea. I think I'll stop there for that one. Um, um, and so, yeah, that in that, with that story, they kind of continue on, I think, in a similar kind of vein. Um, and, and they eventually reach the farm where they're going, which is Jake's parents' farm. Um, this is the next uh, book. This is Faux. So this is the, the mo uh, most recent book that came out in, in August. Um, and again, I, I think it's probably better not to tell you a whole lot about it. Um, uh, what I can say, I think, is that this, this is a story about um, a married couple who live uh, a secluded life, um, an isolated life, um, in the near future, and they live on a farm. They live in an old farmhouse. And uh, one evening, out of the blue, uh, their existence, their quiet existence, is, is disrupted um, with the arrival of a stranger, a man who shows up. And he basically has some potentially uh, alarming and life-altering news for one of them. Um, and that's, I think, all I need to tell you. Uh, I think with this one, I'll, I'll, I'll just start right from the very beginning, because that's easiest. Um, <laughs> what I will say is that this one is also a, a first-person narrative, and uh, the narrator is Junior, and he is the husband in this, in this uh, married couple, and his wife's name is Henrietta, or Hen. Um, two headlights. I wake to the sight of them. Odd because of the distinct green tint, not the usual white headlights you see around here. I spot them through the window at the end of the lane. I must have been in a kind of quasi-slumber, an after-dinner daze brought on by a full stomach and the evening heat. I blink several times, attempting to focus. There's no warning, no explanation. I can't hear the car from here. I just open my eyes and see the green lights. It's like they appear out of nowhere, 
shaking me from my gaze. They're brighter than most headlights, glaring from between the two dead trees at the end of the lane. I don't know the precise time, but it's dark. It's late. Too late for a visitor. Not that we get many of them. We don't get visitors. Never have. Not out here. I stand, stretch my arms above my head. I pick up the open bottle of beer that's beside me. Walk from my chair straight ahead several steps to the window. My shirt is unbuttoned, as it often is at this time of night. Nothing ever feels simple in this heat. Everything requires an effort. I'm waiting to see if, as I think, the car will stop, reverse back onto the road, continue on, and leave us alone, as it should. But it doesn't. The car stays where it is. And then, after a long hesitation, or reluctance, or uncertainty, the car starts moving again toward the house. You expecting anyone, I yell to Anne. No, she calls from upstairs. Of course she's not. We've never had anyone show up at this time of night. Not ever. I take a swig of beer. It's warm. I watch as the car drives all the way up to the house and pulls in beside my truck. Well, you better come down here, I call again. Someone's here. I hear Hen walk down the stairs and into the room. <clears throat> I turn around. She must have just gotten out of the shower. She's in cut-off shorts and a black tank top. Her hair is damp. She looks beautiful. I don't think she could look more like herself or any better than she does right now like this. Hello, I say. Hey. She brings her hand up to her hair, playing with it in a specific way, curling it slowly around her index finger and then straightening the hair out. It's compulsive. She does this when she's concentrating or when she's agitated. Someone's here, I say again. She stands there, staring at me. I don't think she's blinked. Her posture is stiff. What, I ask, are you okay? Yes, she replies, it's nothing. I I'm surprised someone's here. She takes a few hesitant steps toward me and maintains more than an arm's length distance, but is close enough now that I can smell her hand cream. It's a unique smell and one I register as hen. Do you know anyone with a black car like that, she says. No, but it looks official, like government, doesn't it? Could be, she says. He must want something, whoever it is. They're here. They came all the way up to the house. A car door finally opens, but no one steps out, at least not right away. We wait. It feels like five minutes, standing, watching, waiting to see who will step out of the car. Then, I see a leg. Someone steps out. It's a man. <clears throat> you answered, I say, buttoning a section of middle buttons on my shirt. Hen doesn't reply, but turns and walks out of the living room, goes to the front door. Hi there. Sorry to disturb you like this, the man says. Henrietta, right? She nods and looks down at her feet. My name is Terence. I'd like to have a word with you inside, if possible. Is your husband home? The man's exaggerated smile hasn't changed since Hen opened the door. Not at all. What's this about? I ask, stepping out of the living room, into the hall. I'm right behind Hen. I place a hand on her shoulder. She flinches at my touch. I'm taller than he is, wider. 
and older by a few years. Our eyes meet. He holds his attention on me for several moments, longer than what I deem normal. His smile moves to his eyes as if he's delighted by what he sees. Junior, right? Sorry, do we know you? You look great, he says. What's that? This is very exciting. I had butterflies in my stomach the whole way over. It's thrilling to finally see you like this. I'm here to talk with you. Both of you. That's all, he says. Just to talk. I think you'll want to hear what I have to say. Thank you. And you just heard Ian Reed uh, read in the reading portion of March 12, uh, the March 12th uh, Creative Writing at Queen's event in that series. And uh, this month, uh, he was featured uh, and uh, has just read uh, a bit, uh, leaving everybody on the edge of their seats. And his latest uh, two books, uh, they were called I'm Thinking About Ending It All and Foe. Uh, coming up is a really cool Q&A that followed, so I do need to do this first of all. Let's do it, and I'll be right back. I'm David Suzuki. Catch the bus. Just one bus means 40 fewer vehicles on the road and nine tons of pollution out of the air. Not bad for a couple of bucks. The future is in your hands. Get around smarter at davidsuzuki.org. Friday evenings at 6 p.m. here on CFRC, listen to Saltwater Music a show covering all musical genres from the East Coast of Canada. Celtic, of course, but also rock, jazz, blues, folk, and a lot more. I'm your host, Rob Carnell. Tune in to Saltwater Music Friday evening from 6 to 8 here on CFRC 101.9 FM. Or you can catch us on the web at www.cfrc.ca. And for our listeners out east, that's 7 p.m. Atlantic and 7.30 Newfoundland. Since 1922, CFRC Radio has been the canvassing and community radio station for Queens and Kingston, Ontario. CFRC is both listener-supported and listener-created radio, bringing both music and spoken word content to our community on 101.9 FM and around the world on cfrc.ca. Support locally created media. Learn more at cfrc.ca. Folk everything. Every Saturday morning from 10 till noon on CFRC. Traditional folk, modern folk, future folk, and strange deviations from the norm. Hear the legacy of folk music and discover new favorites and forgotten classics on Folk Everything. Join me every Saturday morning at 10 for a romp through folk culture here on CFRC. Says Red to James, that's a fine motorbike. And you are listening to Finding a Voice here on CFRC 101.9 FM. We are located in Lower Carruthers Hall, Queen's University, Kingston, Ontario. My name is Bruce, and here every Friday afternoon from 4 to 6 o'clock, we do stream live online as well at www.cfrc.ca. And I'm doing what I would normally be doing at the end of the hour, uh, but I won't have the chance to do that because the uh, wonderful Q&A that followed this is about uh, 40 minutes long, so it will run about somewhere between 10 and 15 minutes into the second hour. So what I want to do is just say what I would normally say at the end of the hour. Uh, I want to thank you for tuning in uh, to the first 
half hour, I guess, of this show, and I hope you stay tuned for the rest of it. Uh, I will briefly mention as well that both hours of today's show, uh, when it's over, will be saved to my blog space for it shortly after I get home and saved there for years, for four years, at finding a voice on cfrcfm.wordpress.com. With that, let's go ahead and just go back into the March 12th creative writing at Queen's event in that reading and Q&A series and get back to Ian Reed uh, as they begin the Q&A portion of the event. Again, hosted by uh, and organized by Carolyn Smart, who I believe uh, you'll hear her words at the very end as well. Here we go. And it's going to run into the second hour. Um, yeah, so I, I guess at, that, at this point I will ask if anybody has any questions at all, um, and yeah, feel free to ask anything about either these books or previous books or, or uh, anything about writing or whatever comes to mind. Um, I'm happy to try and answer anything. Yeah. You've been very good about not spoiling reading, uh, so I'm going to have to phrase this the same way. Uh, yes, I think that's fair. Uh, it's, it's difficult, though. As Carolyn knows, I had a negative reaction at the end of I'm Thinking of Ending Things. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and I just finished full. Oh, thank you. And I'm beginning to see a pattern. And um, it's not that I it yeah. mitigated that negative re reaction. Yeah. I'll say that yeah. right off the bat. Yeah. Um, and it's not quite the negative reaction that some of Agatha Christie's readers had after the murder of Roger Ackroyd. Right. But uh, there's some similarities there. Sure. Um, and the best word, I can, a phrase I can think of for it is there's a sympathy shock hmm. at the end of yes. both yeah. novels. And it's, it's different from the pleasure you get from a great twist ending yeah. or the resolution of, uh, of built-up suspense. Right. Yeah. In both, you're cut off rather drastically from a character that you suddenly feel you ought to to have more sympathy for. Yeah. And after the first, no, well, it's not, it's not your first book, but after the first novel, oh, yeah. I thought maybe the author is not in control of that. Maybe, maybe that's a waste product that, right. he's, that he's trying to kind of bury. Yeah. <laughs> and it's just me that's hurting. But, and it, it, it ends up being a kind of negative weight that, that, that keeps the novels from being just fun, yeah. or just scary, right? Um, and to, to limit it to, to fall, it's all of a sudden it's the whole society that you realize is, has a problem. Mm -hmm. And it, that could be the same for the first one too. And I'm just wondering how you, how you react to that double yeah, reaction well, on my part. I would say, first of all, thank you for reading it. And also, I love hearing reactions to both of the books, and I think a big part of um, both of them, and for me, my motivation for writing them in the way I, 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 I did, is that I want them to be open for interpretation, that I want readers to bring their own ideas and bias and experience to these stories. And that I agree with you. They're, it's funny because I think both of them have been uh, routinely called thrillers, which I have nothing against thrillers. I read them, but I don't think these books are in any way. 
uh, that's not what I consider a thriller to be. I think much more along the lines of what you, how you have reacted is what I was more interested in. It's certainly not about a thrill ride or just scaring people or, I think the content of both books is unsettling, but really I'm, I'm more interested in the ideas of what these books are about and what these characters are thinking and going through. Um, and even, as you said, there, that maybe there are some surpri you know, surprises at the end, but I, I was not thinking about a twist ending or that didn't come into my mind. It's just that, you know, in both cases, uh, neither book was written with an outline. So I don't know what's going to happen as I write it. I know what I want to write about, the ideas I want to write about, and then I start writing. So I don't have in my mind, oh, here's, I'm going to present this, you know, bit of the plot here, and then I'm going to take it away here. Like, I'm, it's not, it's, I don't think about it that way. I, I, so I'm thinking of anything is I wanted to write about, you know, relationships and solitude and isolation and loneliness. Um, and I wanted to get at that stuff in a way that to me felt different and that felt uh, fresh and exciting for me. But that's what the story is about, and it's not meant to just be a sort of a, a suspense or thrill ride. I think inherently all those things have suspense in them, so it made sense to tell that kind of story. But and with Faux, uh, you know, you're right. It's, it's sort of this. It's about this one particular couple in one. I mean, the whole book almost takes place in one place in a house, you know, in an old farmhouse. Um, but but my hope is that yeah, some people will get something more from it than just this particular couple. Um, I think that it really, uh, I was saying to the class earlier, the inspiration for Faux in a, in a lot of ways came in a bizarre manner in, in that I was, I was actually at an, an award ceremony. I was not receiving the award, unfortunately, but <laughs> I was in attendance. And uh, the, the male author who was receiving the award thanked his wife, which is fine, but he thanked her in such a way that to me was a little bit un unappealing, and I found it a little bit icky, even though people were like, oh, it's so sweet. Um, he said something along the lines of, again, if her name was like Jane or something, I want to thank Jane for like propping up my genius, basically. Um, sorry. Um, and it just seemed to me like I wanted to find out who she was, like who, who is Jane, what's her story? I don't think she's, I don't think she just is there to kind of like do this for you. Um, and I, I thought, I, I'd be curious to write about that, you know, that type of that type of relationship and the relationship that is confining and which to me is sort of heightened if you're in a farmhouse in the middle of nowhere and the opposite of that is space and so that's how the space aspect of the story came into it because I think that's an interesting metaphor for a confining marriage um, but again I love when I've been to things like this before where especially with I'm thinking of endings people have almost like it's only come to blows where they're telling me what the, what the end means. And, and I probably shouldn't, but I'm like encouraging it. I'm like, yeah, yeah, keep going. <laughs> Get mad at each other. Um, that, that's what, I, to me, I think that's, you know, when fiction is, is most interesting is when that can happen. When, if, it's, if it's just about me telling you, here's what you should get from the book, what's the point? Like, why even write it? Why? For me, it's about, I want to think about something for a long time and then present it in such a way that you can then read it and think about it, and it's, we have an interaction, basically, is what's happening. And you're not wrong for thinking whatever you think. Um, I, not everybody likes that, but that's sort of, for me, what I find appealing. Anybody else, any questions at all? Or? Hello? That's okay. Yeah? So, looking at 
find my gargantuan to watch and to do this. I have this constant imposter syndrome as a writer that I haven't read nearly enough. Right. And while I've been digging my street cred and reading all these Olgameshes and Dantes, <laughs> I'm not actually writing. So what's right. your relationship between the media you consume and what you write? Well, that's a good question. Um, I think I can relate to that. I uh, came up in the class earlier too. I think I'm I'm not someone, I'm not a believer in any sort of strict regimen about writing. I think, you know, you can, if it works for you as a writer, getting up every day and running five miles and then, re and then you know, writing for four hours, like, that's great. But I think it's absurd to try and tell someone else that's what they should do. Or just, the, again, that notion of writing every day, that's what serious writers do, I think is, is silly. And I, I don't agree with that. So. But what you said actually is interesting, because I think reading is more important. I think that's, if, if you have an interest in writing and you want to devote you know, time to writing, I think the, mo the most important thing you can do is read and think about the books you're reading and try and read widely and, and maybe read every day. That seems like probably a good thing. And, but also, you know, watch movies and, I, I mean, anything I think that you're doing that involves people and stories um, and your, even your own experiences, I mean, that's the stuff you're going to use as a writer, your own your own life, the things you observe in your life. And, um, but the, the actual writing itself, I think, is, is, it's very personal. You have to find, for you, what works. Um, and for me, it's always kind of chasing that feeling of excitement. If I, if I get an idea for something and I feel excited by it, I'm going to end up writing a lot. I'm gonna end up, but I also spend months where I don't write at all. And for me, I, I'm thinking about stuff, and that's just as helpful. I, it's hard for me to kind of separate the process and know, but I know that parts I mean, when folk came out in, since August, I didn't write for about three months at all. Nothing, you know, other than, other than sort of silly emails or something. Um, but I was thinking about the thing I'm working on now, you know, and so that, for me, is almost part of the process, is the, is the time where you're not writing, you're just thinking. And, and, uh, but I, I really am a believer in everybody kind of doing it their way. And, and that also includes things like outlines, that, you know, like I would never tell someone not to write an outline. I think it's a more efficient way to do it. It just doesn't work for me. It's not something that I like, um, but it would just—it it doesn't seem reasonable in any way that what works for me would work for somebody else. And, um, I, I think that's what's interesting about it is it, 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 it is it, it's very you know. Um, so I, I yeah I can appreciate that feeling. Yeah. So I think it's been more than three months since August. Are you willing to share what you're working on now? Let me just do the math. Yeah, yeah. Although probably won't be that interesting. I'm I'm working on a, another story, um, and I would say it's it's fiction. That's that's about it. Um, <laughs> it uh, yeah, it's 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 pretty early still, and I, 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 as I was I was asked before about um, if. Because I think some people who are who are write, writers will, will will have a group of people who they will get to read their stuff early on as they're working on it. And again, that's something I'm not really that way inclined. I usually stay with something on my own for a long time. Um, and for, I don't know why, for for whatever reason, it always feels it doesn't feel complete yet. I'm always nervous about either showing people or talking too much about it before. And I think again, part of that is that I don't have this sort of set outline in it. So for me, as I'm working on something, it's changing all the time, and it's evolving. Um, 
So it's, uh, but, but I've been, I, I do feel like I'm progressing slowly with it. And, but I, I think I'm slow. I, I always, I feel, I take, you know, I, I waste time and, I, and I'm, I'm slow. It, it's hard, I always find it hard. So I'm, I will say that right now I'm working on I'm flying difficult, and that's been the case with these these ones too. So I think I think I'm I'm kind of uh, hopefully on the right track. Um, if it felt I think easy, I would do something else. I would want I want to do something else. So. Yeah. Um, how early on in the process do your characters develop their internal and external voices? Like the characters, I yeah. believe. Have a tendency to be themselves, right. but do their voices come naturally, or do you have to structure and restructure? That's a good question. Yeah, I think it can it can be dependent on the on the particular story or project, but I think that takes a bit of time <clears throat> for me, and, and definitely does not happen right away. It, it happens again as I'm working on the story. I think the characters emerge and their voices emerge, and their internal world. I mean, that's something I'm always interested in. Both is the, the dialogue, so trying to write dialogue, which is a, a, you know a true challenge, and um, I find in a lot of books it's, it's it, it, it reads like a writer to me, and I, I always try, I try not to do that as much as possible. Trying to I try and just for my own sake, like I don't I don't want it when I'm reading and I, I read again particularly dialogue and I feel like the writer is present, it, it distracts me and I get annoyed by that. Um, so I, it, it, as you're working on it for me, it, it does take time. To really get the dialogue down, to get the voice down, and the certain the cadence and the way they the, the way they speak, and depending on again what if there are if there are you know a postdoc about chemistry, then you want to get certain some of the lingo down, and, and so all that does take time, and then their internal world is another thing, and that also I think is for me very interesting to try and understand that, and it's just about sitting. That's the part I think that's both fun but also difficult because you're sitting down and. It really just requires time and just getting getting to know them. And what I like about them not having an outline is that they will the characters will surprise you uh, as you're working, and they they'll they'll do something or they'll think something, and I didn't see it coming or I didn't I wasn't aware. And I that's what I'm looking for as I'm working. I'm always looking for those things that will do that. And their voice is a, is a big part of that. It's sort of finding it, and until I kind of get the, the, the hang of it, it it's, um, you always feel like you're on the edge a little bit, and it's, I, I, I like that, actually. Yeah. Thank you. Um, I think a lot about um, the embodied kind of process here, and so you mentioned about following uh, the excitement. And for you, I was wondering, in terms of that awareness of that excitement when you're working with an idea or thing, have those themes tended to, have you gone back to similar ones throughout your, your hmm. yeah. process? And then also, when you're not feeling that, is there something you do or do you have thought about how to, to do you just simply write or wait? Or how do you then get that feeling back, to know you're back on that excitement? Yeah, um, good question. And I, I don't know for sure what I do. I think sometimes it, it does uh, wane a bit. I, I think, you know, for me, the, the very the beginning part of the story is always the hardest. It's always the time when there's an undercurrent of excitement about the whole idea, but it's, it also feels like a bit of a leap of faith. It, it's almost, uh, I kind of know there's something there that I'm really interested in, and usually it's, a, it's personal. It's something that, and in, these, in both of these cases, it's things I'm scared of, things that I find that, that, that unsettle me or scare me. Um, and 
I've realized that's the stuff that I'm kind of drawn to. That not necessarily stuff that scares me, but stuff that feels personal. Um, and I didn't expect that necessarily. You know, I thought maybe there would be more separation between myself and these stories, and there really isn't. But in an interesting way, maybe a bit of a confusing way, it's not. Um, these stories are made up. It's not like they're based on something that's happened in my life, or I've you know heard a story and I've. It's the ideas in them are things that I have thought about, things I think about, um, and and that's how I know I can spend a year or two working on them. And what is exciting for me about it is 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 getting that opportunity to to sort of be around these ideas and think about them more and potentially understand them a little better. Um, and it doesn't always work out the way, but often for me, writing what is appealing about it is it does help me understand things um, in, in a way that you know other things still don't help me. Um, and and you also again it's the access that you get. Um, it's it's need to get gain access to the what these characters are thinking. You know that that you don't in in normal human interaction, which is. I think what was alluded to in that one part of, in, that I read where you know, she was saying that people say, oh, it's pleased to meet you, but they're kind of already thinking about something else. And there is also a part in early on in I think many things where she references Jake saying that you know, thoughts are closer to reality than actions because people can act any way they want, but it may not be sincere. But you can't fake a thought. If you have a thought, it's real. Um, I find that stuff interesting, and I find it, it can, the more I think about these things, they can scare me a little bit. Um, nothing scarier than your own brain, right? So, for certain people, so I, again, there are, it's really interesting with ending things. I've had people I know if they're like me, it's going to be scary. But if you're not, you're going to this book is boring. There's no like, there's no gore. You know, give me some. So it depends what kind of stuff makes you unsettled. Uh, yeah, it's like humor, though, right? It's the same thing. Like, there are things I find that curious that there'll be things that I find very funny and I'll show it to a friend and they're like, that's not funny at all. <laughs> so it's the same with what, what scares us. You know, it's, it's distinct for, for each of us and it's on a spectrum. So. Thank you. Yeah. Uh, thanks. To contradict one of your people, it is both I'm thinking and saying it's a pleasure to hear you today. Yeah. <laughs> um, I'm curious, will you have much involvement in the film adaptations? Uh, yeah, yeah. Well, that's, that's kind of been a fun part of the process and for the first one, uh, I think many things, I, yeah, you know, it kind of came about in a weird way that I, the book had been sent around to people and a few people had been expressing some interest, producers and stuff, and <clears throat> nothing was really, for me, that exciting. Like some of them, it, was, it just sort of felt like, you know, these producers who were like, oh yeah, we really love the book. And I, I'd be like, oh, well, what, you know, what part? And they're like, wow, the book's great. <laughs> it's like, okay, I kind of was like, I don't, have you even read it, you know? Um, <laughs> So it wasn't, and then and then Charlie, the guy who's doing it, he, when he got in touch, you know, and it was, everything felt different. Talking to him, and we t- we just had this long phone call, and I could tell right away, like, oh, this is if anybody's going to make this movie now, I feel it has to be him. It kind of ruined, you know. It's almost like if you're, you know, you, you grade eight dance or something, you're going to your first dance, and like the person you have a big crush on dances with you first, and then they kind of leave, and you're like, I don't want to dance with anybody else now. <laughs> Ruin the dance for me. Um, you go stand in the corner. Uh, that's sort of the feeling with this. It was like, yeah, I don't. Now it's like no one else can kind of compare the way he talked about the story, what appealed to him about the story. And I think 
it took a long time to figure out how this movie was going to get made, and it, and it wasn't initially even Netflix who was on board. Like that took some time for them to come on, and so in that time, we ended up interacting a lot and talking and, and meeting and spending time together, and it became it got to the point where then he was comfortable allowing me to be part of the process. So he wanted to write the movie himself and direct it, which of course I was happy with, but he did allow me to be a, a producer with him on the, on the movie. So that for me just felt like I could have a, this amazing learning opportunity. And that's what it's happened, what been the case. I haven't really tried to you know, offer any opinion unless I'm asked, and otherwise I just want to kind of be learning. And for Faux, it's earlier on in the process, so um, it, the, there's a director now attached to the movie and, and uh, the producer's been great and I, I, I will also be a producer on that we'll see I, I, I just spent about four days with the director and we went over the book kind of page by page which was really an interesting intense experience I, I hadn't done anything quite like that before and so he's been so far collaborative and uh, we'll see I, it, it's been fun to kind of to do this because I come from the book world, that's where I'm comfortable, and I don't, I didn't know a lot about the film world and other than being a fan. So I'm just learning a lot, and, and so far everybody's been really nice to me, and that's that's been nice too. I I, I don't think I feel overly comfortable in LA. I'll say that, but <laughs> I, I don't think I'm in a rush to go back. Uh, but everybody's very nice, so I'm excited about, about the the work. Ian, what does a producer actually do? You know, I'm, I'm <laughs> learning. That's a great question. And it's, there's, yeah, it's, it, there are varying, there's, there are different types of producers. And uh, in my case, so far, it's in both cases, sort of a consultant. Um, so someone who you have a, a part in each part of the process as so, so for example, the story and the script with Unthinking of Anything's, we talk a lot about the story. So Charlie was, would ask, why does, you know, he, he got in depth in a way that, yeah, usually I wouldn't reveal too much about why something happens in the novel, but in that case, I would tell him everything because I want him to know everything I was thinking. Um, and so we would, you know, I would get an email from him say, oh, are you there? I need to, I want to ask you about something. And I, he would call and he would ask, you know, a particular question about the story. And I would and then, we, and then, or he would send me uh, when, when they're thinking about casting and stuff. He would be sending me actors. What do you think about? You know this actor, or what do you think about? Or I would do that to him during over the course of months. I would say, oh, I just came across this actor. What do you think? And so we'd go back and forth about that stuff. Obviously, I, I don't have anything to do with like you know setting the budget or it's oh, my <clears throat> contributions as a producer are much more creative and um, trying to offer any kind of insight to the story and the characters that I can and. I mean, again, with Faux going through the book with the director for it, that was, again, sort of me just trying to offer everything I know about the story so then he can take it and do what he sees fit for it, as sort of visually as the director. And, um, but I also don't want them to feel, in either case, you know, beholden to, to the book, because the book is its own thing, and it's separate from the movie, and it will always be separate. And I think that really the the movie's going to be, it's the director really who's going to be shaping what, what the story is and so if I feel like I can give you everything I know about it and then you can take it and but it's been, just been, and, you know it's been really fun to, just to learn there, there's, there are, I, I mean I can't think of any particular examples right now but there are times where like we'll be talking and I have to like 
stop the another producer and just say, I don't, I don't even know what that word you just used is. <laughs> and it's just like, I don't know the lingo of filmmaking. So it's, it, it feels sometimes you know, pathetic, but at the same time, I, I sometimes try and fake it and just I won't ask that question. But when I ask the question, I'm like, maybe I shouldn't have asked what that word means because it's probably understood everybody else knows what that means. So I'm yeah, learning from the very basic um, and I'm trying to expand as, I, as we go. Yeah. So if they diverge... That's good. <laughs> Divergence is good. Okay. And, and that's what I hear you saying, is you want people to feel free to interpret your work yeah. in a way that is right for them. Or in a way that I think is natural for them, yeah. yeah. Right. So, and that's positive. But we seem to be in an era of genre, and everybody says, what genre? And they want to wedge it. Right. And I don't know how you fight that. Yeah, I think like, that's... Like, do you just, I mean... Well, I think my feeling would be probably... Tell them to go to hell? Or well, no, that's, <laughs> I mean, I think actually more... My feeling would be to, to not really fight it, to think if people, if people read it... I mean, I think, first of all, you know, if you, if you haven't read it and you react and you say something, well, that's maybe not as relevant. If, you, if you've read it, any book, and you feel like, well, when I read this, for me, it was a science fiction book, then I, I think you have as much authority as I do. You've read it. You've spent the time with it. Um, so it's 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 a little trickier, say, in a bookstore, like with booksellers, or even my. I felt quite bad for my publishers, really, with these books because we spent time trying to talk about, like, what are these books, man? You yeah, know? that's like, what they wanted. Like, to know. Ian, what are these books? And I would say, I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> uh, to me, they're stories, you know. And I have a hard time, like, kind of settling on saying anything other than they're just stories and they're they feel personal for me and. Um, I think after like a, you know one of these long, drawn out meetings, we kind of emerged one day at my publisher. We were, we were like, "Do you feel okay calling it like philosophical suspense?" And I was like, "I guess, I guess, probably more so than anything." And, and then we're like, "That's not really a genre." <laughs> but no, it's not. But um, so it's yeah. I kind of let that happen, and I let people call it whatever they want. You know, it's sort of like once you publish it, it's sort of it's not really mine anymore. I feel it's it's like. It, it, you feel lucky if people read it at all, and so it's kind of theirs as much as it is mine now. It's out in the world, so um, and I don't think of genre when I'm working. At least in these ones, maybe down the road I will want to write a, a book that feels like a genre book for me. But when I'm working, I'm just thinking about the book, the story, and the characters, not thinking about the readers at all. So they don't impose editorial changes no. to meet that specific. No, no, that's a good question. They don't. I, I think I would be pretty. I wouldn't like that so much, and I love editing. I like the process. I'm happy about it, and I appreciate it. And part of it is that they know, in these, both of these cases, that I had a particular uh, vision for them, and, and they they weren't about... Because certainly I'm thinking many things would be different if that was the case. When my agent had submitted it to the States, to the <clears throat> publishers down there, a couple of them came back and said, oh, yeah, here's a, we're going to offer you a deal, but we need you to change the ending. <laughs> No, I said, no, I, did, I couldn't do it. I just didn't want to do that. If I had decided I wanted to write a book like that, I would have. But I knew with this one, it wasn't that kind of book. And so that wasn't the right editor. You know? and, and we found the right we, Lots of people said no, and we, but we found the right one who wanted it the way it was. So. Any other questions? Yeah. Um, what writers do you look up to and why? You know, there's, there's so many. Um, I, I, as I say, I kind of came across 
I, I, you know, started as a reader. I think for me that's um, something that I, I was fortunate to grow up in a house that had a lot of books around. My dad's an English prof, and um, so I mean, recently I was telling Carol there's a there's a book I I read this year called There There by an author named Tommy Orange. So that's a book I would recommend people look for, and I think it's one that. Um, will kind of stand the test of time. People are going to talk about that book for a while, and it, it kind of, to me, in the last few years, is definitely one that has stuck out in my, in my mind as one that I, I, it's just distinct and exciting for me. Another one, there's an Icelandic guy uh, named Sjön, S-J-O-N, and he's also someone who's, who's I've read all his work now, and I just I find it unlike anybody else. Um, and he's 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 it's truly wonderful. He, um, his his most recent book, well, actually he had a new one this coming. His his second most recent one was called the Moonstone, and I've read that book about four times now. And there's always little aspects of it that I didn't get the first reading. Um, so I, I, yeah, I I think any time I find stuff, I come across something that really seems different, and that seems maybe uh, unlike anything I've read before. That's the stuff that usually um, is most memorable for me. Um, but yeah, you know, there's, there's lots. I, I think if, 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 if we were kind of sitting here for a while, I'm sure we could go back and forth. And, um, <clears throat> but, but yeah, just almost too, um, too, almost too many to even come up with uh, you know, a, a list. But yeah. Do they seem open to interpretation in the way that you like, or do all books seem that way to you? Well, yeah, I think no. Some some don't, and I think you know, um, if for for example, like some of the genre, a lot of the genre books when I do read, say science fiction or thrillers or horror books, a lot of those aren't open for interpretation in a way, and, and I'm okay with that in in in, in those cases. Um, I think most uh, literary fiction is open for interpretation to to varying degrees. Again, it's not sort of on a spectrum, so, you know. Um, but that I think if there, if there isn't an opportunity to interact as the reader with it and to feel like you're completing it, that it somehow seems like you're limiting what the possibility is of a book in general. I think that's what maybe sets a book apart from other form, these other things that we do in our in our spare time when we're interacting with media. And I still think that's something uh, that makes books and, and fiction and literature unique is that chance to really feel. Um, it's, it's an intimate thing and you really do feel like you're part of the story as a reader by the end and, I, and there's sometimes books I read I love and I, I almost don't want to tell anybody about it because I just want it to be mine I want to experience that I don't want anybody else to even really it's bizarre it's sort of you know strange impulse but um, I don't really feel that way with other things like often if I watch a, a film I love or I'll tell people about it right away or sometimes with books it just feels like I want to have my own and even sometimes like, I, I can't even really verbalize why I like it and it's it's maybe partially because I you know I can't I'm not articulate enough, but it, it sometimes it's just because I don't I, I I can't express it. I it's just a feeling, you know. Um, so I think I do think a lot of books I, I have returned to or that I like there is an element of of you know interpreting, it, but also just feeling like I'm completing it as a reader that I'm I'm finishing it, and I, I do like that feeling. Yeah. This is comparatively silly, but I was just wondering if you were intimidated showing your book, your first book or your first novel, to your English professor dad. Yeah, 
Uh, I mean, I'm intimidated by a lot of things. I, uh, I don't know about that one so much. I mean, I, I got used to showing him things. So I remember in high school and stuff, like, showing him, getting him really trying to read some of my essays. And he would always be like, I don't want to do this, man. This is what I do. Uh, you know, but I also knew that I would really try and remind my high school English teacher, like, Oh, by the way, my dad read this essay. He thought it was really good. <laughs> and it's an English prof, so just, I don't know if that's relevant, but. So I kind of got used to that. It's, and then once he sort of stopped being a resource, like, I, I, he doesn't read anything now for me early on. Um, he reads these books like anybody else sort of the day they come out, you know. And uh, so it's kind of, it's been funny that way. My sister now kind of has taken on the role a little bit of uh, early reader for me. As I say, I don't usually show too many people stuff early. <clears throat> she does, and, and actually a couple times my mom has like come on board pretty early um, in a way that I'm surprised at because she doesn't have kind of any background in formal training and but I, I, she has great instincts, I think. So sometimes I'll get her to read something and she'll notice something or and have, she's been pretty helpful to me in a lot of ways. So, I, you know, I may, with my new stuff, I may be going to my mom, which is an unlikely source. Especially if my dad's like, what, what did I, like, <laughs> what am I, shop liver? You know? <laughs> Anybody else? Any, any thoughts, questions, or... Yeah. And if you don't have that, you don't have a dad or a yeah. mom or a yeah. sister. Yeah. Well, in fact, in that case, I think it's it's okay not to have anybody. Like it's okay not to show it. I I skew more to that anyway. I think I would I would be fine not showing my stuff to anybody until I felt like it was done. Um, but I also think it can be helpful. So there are opportunities to seek out writing groups. Um, you know, people in your community, um, people, other readers or other writers. Or it's a, it's really quite astounding when you start to look into how many other people have an interest in this stuff and who you know who appreciate just the time to sit and write and then interact with other people who are doing that and talk about it. That's I mean, that for me is is always I, I always feel encouraged by that because that's what I am. I mean, everybody we're all the same. Those of us who spend time thinking about stories and writing and. Um, the process is, is different how we do it, but I think what what pulls us to that is, is similar. So you can you can find those people who you feel comfortable with sharing, and um, or you can you can be more like a hermit like me and just sort of go that route. Um, and uh, yeah, which is I think it kind of is, is probably more a personality thing, um, and uh, more than anything, and, and I probably can't take criticism very well either, so I'm, I'm, I think I'm a bit of a baby. <laughs> so I'm probably too soft for writing groups, really. So. What else? Yeah. Oh, that was a space scratch. I'm sorry. <laughs> I did have another question. I was thinking about regional differences in voices and uh, acceptance of, yeah. you know, what the expectation of the community that you're in and another community. Right. Um, you mentioned the Icelandic. Yeah. Yeah, well, I read some Icelandic books. Oh, cool. And, and uh, I've been working on them. And, and I had to get used to it at first. It was, it was different. 
So do you mean you were you reading? You weren't reading them in Icelandic, though, were you? No. Okay. I was going to say, wow, that's impressive. <laughs> I could never do that. No. So, um, but I, no, I agree. Even in translation, you know, you do. I think that's a, a pleasure of reading books in translation because you you get a different sense of yeah. of people and Absolutely. who they are. Yeah. But I've also found that some people have the expectation that if there's something different in the way you're presenting something, then they don't like it. Yeah. I've had people right. tell me, oh, nobody talks like that. Oh. But the people in the, the region would look at it and right. say, Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I know. <laughs> it can get pretty complicated, I think, when you're yeah. doing stuff like that. And that's, again, why sometimes it can be a detriment to show people early stuff, because it can change as you're working on it. And also, sometimes, I think the last thing you need early on in something is someone telling you you're doing it wrong, or <laughs> it's it can be deflating. You know, it's it's it already feels like you're kind of balancing all these things, and um, it's it's just it's it can be helpful, but can also be it, it can also be very unhelpful and can and can throw you off, especially if I mean in the class I mentioned an analogy that just popped into my head was like you know cooking a big dinner for people, and you're just sort of like you got all these pots on the stove, you're running around the kitchen, and people are kind of waiting, and it's sort of like an all day feast, let's say in my in my fantasy, and uh, they come in halfway through and like, oh, we want to get a sample. And it's like, well, it's not ready. I mean, yeah, physically you could come in and take a bite, but it's gonna be it's gonna not taste good in any way. But yes, fine, come in and, and then they're trying to give you pointers. You're like, no, I know, I'm still gonna add salt to that. It's like I haven't gotten to that point yet. So then it's just sort of frustrating and now you're irritated and so it's sort of like it's sort of like that. I think it, it could happen where they could come in and try it and say, Oh, you need to put some maple syrup in this, and you're like, Oh, you're right, that's where it's missing. So it could be helpful, but it could also just totally frazzle you. And throw you off, um, and it's 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 complicated. You know, there's no, I don't I don't think one right way to do it. Yeah. So you mentioned to write Jake, I think you learned some science lingo, but of course that there's a ceiling to that because unless you were a postdoc science to do it yourself, you wouldn't be able to be accurate. Right. So. When writing other walks of life, how do you balance accuracy and just functional amounts of research? Yeah, I think that's that's interesting, and I, I think for me, I try and approach it as like, what do I find like my own interest level? So for me, learning about biochemistry when I was writing, uh, I think many things, and, and spending some time with biochem like a biochemist and. That for me was just interesting. I like that, I, you know, just not even in the context of the story. I thought I found it interesting, and that I think can be one of the sort of side effects of that type of research is when you just yourself learn about something. Most of the stuff I find I do isn't like that. It's not. I'm not sort of uh, thinking about a particular type of person, and then doing a whole bunch of. It's, they're not historical novels where I'm. Um, that type of stuff usually I'm not drawn to. I'm this really how I do it is mostly based on my own experience and things I've observed in my life and the way people behave together or interact or that sort of. So it's almost like research by default, just by being alive, being a human, um, and and I think generally I skew to being kind of observant about things. That's something I've always, if I've been when I'm out public or I'm listening to people and I'm watching the way people behave and. So that has always been sort of my, and it's not that common for me to kind of pick a particular thing. Other, and I mean, that's interesting that 
both for me I, with everything about both of these books kind of are have a rural element to them. They you know kind of take place on farm. So does my first book, which is about a nonfiction book about going to live with my parents on their farm. And you know they're they're quirky, my parents I will say, and different and a little bit unusual. But they have a great relationship and they're very nice people. And when I'm thinking about these came out, a couple journalists when I was doing interviews who had read both books. <laughs> would say to me, like, uh, they would say, oh, by the way, I read one of her choice, and like, I thought your parents were so nice, but now, <laughs> I had no idea they were so creepy. I would have to remind them, like, this is fiction. <laughs> My parents, if you want to know, they're like, read the first book. That's the authentic So a lot of the stuff I've done, it's, I think it's just kind of based on my own path. And um, for whatever reason, that's the kind of stuff I'm more, more drawn to. On that note, Ian, I think we're going to have to call a halt to this. Okay. And I just want to say, for people who are interested, there are a handful of books for sale for $20 cash. So if you're interested, they will be over uh, on there over there, right? Yeah. I'll get them, yeah. And please feel free to speak to Ian privately if you'd like and buy the books. And thank you very much for coming. Thank you all for coming very much. And you just heard uh, the conclusion. Uh, that was the Q&A portion that started uh, about halfway through the first hour of uh, Ian Reed, uh, And uh, he was at the March 12th uh, Creative Writing at Queen's University event in their series. And uh, in the fir first hour, uh, read portions of his two latest uh, books of fiction called I'm Thinking About Ending It All and Foe. And then uh, those themes sort of kept coming up, uh, as well as a number of other things in the Q&A that followed. So, yeah, it was Wonderful event that day. And with that, I want to welcome you back into the second hour of today's show. It's about, what is it? Almost not quite a quarter after uh, 5 o'clock. And uh, you're listening to Finding a Voice here on CFRC 101.9 FM. We are located in Lower Carruthers Hall, Queen's University, Kingston, Ontario. My name is Bruce, here every Friday afternoon from 4 to 6 o'clock, and we do stream live online as well at www.cfrc.ca. Uh, before we move into the second hour a little more fully, and I'll announce that, uh, I need to throw this on. Yusuf Fakiri is on a speaking tour to address the case against his brother, Solomon Fakiri, in addition to the broader themes of mental health, correctional systems in Ontario, and the need for reform. Please join Yusuf Fakiri for the screening of the Fifth Estates episode of Jail Death, What Happened to Solomon Fakiri? at Kingston Hall, Room 200, on Monday, March 25th, 6 p.m. to 7.30 p.m. For more information, visit facebook.com forward slash justice for Solly. And I know that that is a bit dated, but maybe the subject is something that is important and uh, it was set to air, so there you go. In the second hour of the show this afternoon, after playing two full hours from it, uh, we'll go back into, uh, for the remainder of this hour, uh, the March 5th and the Journey continues open mic reading in that monthly series. Uh, today you'll hear more from it with readings uh, 
by Judith Popeil, Aaron Boyce, Sasha Hill, Ken Chin. Uh, this first, though, again, just the usual hourly announcement. Occasionally some poetry, spoken word, or music played on this show may contain strong language, but it's all played in its entirety with content unedited to honor the creative integrity of both the author and the piece. I do believe I will have uh, quite a few minutes, actually, at the end of this hour uh, to share upcoming events or calls. And uh, with that, let's go ahead and just jump back into uh, the, again, begun last week, March 5th, and the journey continues, open mic reading in that monthly series now held at the Elm Cafe. Here is Judith Popeil. Next, Judith Popeil, let's bring her up. So, I haven't been here for a while, so it feels really good. As soon as I entered the room, it was like, oh, that's the energy. So, I'm familiar with the energy, and it just felt really comfortable. So, thank you. I'm just going to read a few of my nature poems, and then I have a, I've been going through all my writing that I've been writing for years and years, and I came up with uh, a piece that um, is rather beautiful. Um, when I reread it, uh, I was traveling in Greece, and um, I was in love and having a great time, and uh, so I'd like to read that piece tonight, and that's from the 70s. So. Um, this, these nature poems are about the eclipse. Um, so, here we go. Moon in transition between earth and sky, energy flowing in both directions, sounds of waves brushing up on the shore of Lake Ontario, fresh light wind touching my face, moon moving from earth to sky, elusive forms emerging, As the eclipse transpires, only the silent lake murmurs against the night sky. Um, and then there's a little bit not organized. Floating moon passing over earth. Oh, how spectacular. Moon's light slowly fading over earth's grandeur sliver of light reflecting as bright as day like a diamond in the sky. Only a shiver remains, only a sliver remains shrouded by a filmy cloud. Earth has suddenly disappeared, screaming, eclipse, eclipse. So, don't go. So this is on the island of Crete in Greece, and um, Bob and I decided to travel from the north where we were living in a little town called Sotia, uh, away from the crowds of people who were tourists. We kind of hid out a lot and did a lot of different abstract things that normal people wouldn't do. Some of which I'll tell you about and some not. <laughs> So, Arachnion was very depressing, cold, raining, and a much quicker pace than that of Satya. 
Friday night, we ate at a very good restaurant, which was quite reasonable for the city. Then we saw Fiddler on the Roof. We decided to head for some sun in Galini on the south of the island. We were asking for sun, but there was also many other consequences we would have to pay in order to get the sun we wanted. The bus ride to Galini, to the south of the island, was really a very good, soulful trip. A beautiful little Greek lady sat behind us. I gave her an orange. The little bus seemed to perform its task as if it were a snake climbing high in the wilderness, looking for its prey. The topography on this side of the island is quite different from the other side of the island. Many grape orchards spreading high into the foothills. We saw several peasants riding their donkeys and bringing their goats home. Everything was so green. All different shades of green were displayed. Another blanket Mother Nature had spread. Then came the olive groves on the less fertile parts of the island. But still, everything seemed to be letting out beautiful hues of green. If only I could paint a picture to show the greens on the hills to people. But no, I must remember it as I'm seeing it now. Anyway, we arrived in Galini around 4 p.m. Every day new recruits come to Galini. You could observe the Greeks with their eyes wide open and their tongues hanging out. They love it. And when foreigners come, they say, Pulidrachma, Pulidrachma, which means more money, more money. But do these Greeks really realize what money does? Do they fully realize the consequences? Galini is situated very down in a ravine at the bottom of the high mountains on the south of the island. It is a little town that is smothered by the surrounding mountains and with the sea at its side, Galini takes on an atmosphere of Shangri-La. There are 400 Greeks living there year round and at least 100 tourists. We have spoken to several Greeks who say that in the months of July and August, there are more than 2,000 tourists there. What a joy ride it must be. But I don't want to be here in the summer. I don't want to even come near this place in the summer. Bob and I haven't spoken to, to very many Americans here since we've been in Bellini. We really have no desire to. We now speak enough Greek to be able to carry on a conversation. So we hang out with the Greeks. There is one Greek hippie, Vangelis, who seems to think he's really charming. But he's very, he's also very nice. So it really doesn't matter what he's on to. He seems to always have several chicks who send him letters from different countries after they leave Greece. And he likes to brag about them. Well, Bob and I came here for sun, but much to our surprise, Sunday, Galini had its worst snowfall in 30 years. Winds were very strong, and it snowed from morning to night. So Bob and I, we decided to get a comfortable, cozy pension, sat in our bed all day, drank Greek wine, and read Zorba the Greek to each other. 
also wrote in our diaries, as well as sending letters home to the people that we love. I wrote a card to my mother telling her I was planning to go to Israel. Well, so much for that day. Monday was a beautiful sunny day. The tourists were down at the harbor playing volleyball with the cheering section sitting on the nearby boats. We went for a short walk around the cliffs where the German fortress from the Second World War stood. As we peered over the second pier, we saw a panoramic view of the most beautiful mountains I've ever seen. It was like Mother Nature had spread a quilt over the upper, higher mountains. The foothills were a sandy brown to dark green, with the, with the soil being a light brown, clear color. Then the lower foothills, closest to the sea, on which grew olive trees and other vegetation, were much greener than, than were, green, were much greener, somewhat like shamrocks, in the midst of all the little white amidst of all this, the little white church where the peasants go to pray. How beautiful! I can only say that it was like a fairy tale land. We walked on to the lower foothills where two goats were grazing lazily in the sun. We stopped for a few moments to talk with them. They're such strange animals. They seem to be speaking back at us. They look at you with these beady eyes. We climbed higher to a hedge and walked up to another hill only to find a large, clear field of wildflowers. How beautiful the mountains look down on the wildflowers. How beautiful. I'm screwing this up. We look down from, at, from the mountain above. The sun looked down on the mountains and all flowers, grass and trees seemed to be singing, hello Elios, which means hello sun. I can't tell you how amazingly beautiful a sight this was. These flowers were star-shaped, mostly white in color, but with purple insides seeming like accenting the dark centers. A few pink ones, too, scattered in the crowd, but on one side of the field grew a cluster of bright yellow, taller flowers, which I knew from Satya, because Bob had picked a bouquet for me once. That's it. Thank you. And you just heard uh, Judith Popeil at the March 5th and the Journey Continues open mic reading in that monthly series. Up next from it, here is Erin Boyce. Up next, Erin Boyce. Bring her up. here. I'm new to writing poetry. Um, something that you should know about me is that after a long marriage, I've recently begun <clears throat> dating. And in the last eight months, I've been on 24 first dates. I've had uh, two disappointments and one heartbreak. 
So now there's a little message inside me that needs to come out. So I'm going to read to you the first poems I've ever written. I've never um, spoken them out loud before, so um, I feel like this is a, like a welcome crowd. So thanks for listening. <laughs> I carry a secret in a dark forest. My roots scrape raw but hidden under a mossy cloak of brave words. I tell no one. Beauty deceives me now. Inside every flower, a spider waits, promising a sharp sting of longing and the shame of a desire to be bitten, to surrender to your poison, to take you inside me, abandoning reason, and tear the tender threads of care I've woven around myself. Summer breezes cannot cool me. Verdant air cannot refresh me. I cannot be soothed but by your words, as rich as earth and just as dark. But knowing that the cause is not the comfort, I follow a silent path away from you, as a warm, moist pain still glistens in a tender place. Shaking. <laughs> um, I wrote this one after the heartbreak. To write is to engage in an archaeology of the heart, a carefully documented excavation of our most fragile histories. Perfect porcelain promises made and broken. Scraps and treasures scraped from layers of rich experience, buried in lost intentions and the fertile soil of our expectations. This scientific pursuit, crouched in dust on bloodied knees, is an examination of an immaterial material culture, built over time by people lost to us long ago, possibly even forgotten. Each poem uncovered an artifact of love's objective truth, an ancient foundation upon which we dare to build anew. It's a pit, this deep love. We fall in, build up, and fall apart again. Then the, the other night, I, I was up late, um, sacral chakra on fire, and I started writing ambiguously erotic haikus. So I have three that I'll read to you now. <clears throat> the glorious flood purifies wave after wave, baptism by nature. My love, my earth king, be my solid place to burn. Make me your fire queen. And the last one is, in the soft gray light, mouth open, eyes closed, coax me to my surrender. That's not very ambiguous. <laughs> was Aaron Boyce, let's give her another hand.
And you just heard Aaron Voice at the March 5th and the Journey Continues open mic reading in that monthly series now held at the Elm Cafe. I'll tell you what, let's do this and I'll be right back. The Kingston Community House for Self-Reliance, widely known as 99 York, has for 30 years been providing a central, low-cost meeting space for groups that allow like-minded people to come together to learn from one another, to share resources and trade skills. The goal of this house is to act as an integral part of the neighborhood in which it is located. On a typical evening, an autism caregiver relief group will be at 99 York, together with a 12-step organization and a transgendered support group while a social justice and homeschooling group may be booked in the following day. The community house is also available for less official functions, such as barbecues, birthday and office parties, and other social gatherings. We are proud to also serve the Queen's community. For more information, visit 99 York Street in Kingston. Go to www.99york.org, email info at 99york.org, or call 613-542-1136. by myself, Selena Chirelli, here on CFRC 101.9, Monday nights at 7. like to dance? Tune into The Hustle with DJ Bolt every Friday night between 11 p.m. and midnight, where you'll hear all the newest dance, electronic, French touch, booty bass, ghetto, deep, and tech house remixes and more. Let The Hustle take you to midnight and beyond at 11 p.m. on 4 to the Floor Fridays, only on CFRC 101.9 FM. Walk Home is one of the services provided to you by the Alma Mater Society at Queen's University. Walk Home is a completely confidential and anonymous service where students will pick you up and walk you to any location within our extensive boundaries. We are located in the Lower Cayley of the John Deutsch University Centre. You can request a walk by dropping by the kiosk or by calling 613-533-9255 during our hours of operation. We are open every night from dusk till 2am, Sunday to Wednesday, or till 3am from Thursday to Saturday. During exam season, we are open until 4am. Last year, we completed over 10,000 walks, walking the equivalent distance of crossing the width of Canada and back. So whether you're feeling unsafe, want someone to walk with after a night at the library, or feel more comfortable walking downtown with someone, call Walk Home. If you have any questions about the service, please feel free to contact us by calling 613-533-9255 or by emailing walkhome at ams.queensview.ca. 
And uh, you are listening to Finding a Voice here on CFRC 101.9 FM. We are located in Lower Carruthers Hall, Queen's University, Kingston, Ontario. My name is Bruce here every Friday afternoon from 4 to 6. And we do stream live online as well at www.cfrc.ca. Let's go ahead and uh, two more readings this afternoon from it. Uh, go back into the March 5th and the Journey Continues open mic reading in that monthly series. Up next in it here is Sasha Hill. Up next, Sasha Hill. Let's bring her up. two pieces to share with you today. If I can scroll. Okay. This first one, I was kind of dreaming about fireworks. Um, and then I wrote this the morning of that dream. So it's called A Pollock Horizon. A cacophony of paint radiates across a dark sky stretches between peripherals and caught glances. Bursting for moments, whole lives lived past us, fiery birth to death ebbs in dull ochres among the fading stars. Embroidered constellations swirl in undone stitching. Pepper my laughs among the rum-run trains of thought and Glints of flint in your curious looks. Crackling, shattering color, a pollock horizon. Chipping paint surrounds your brow and your eyes catch fire. Smoldering look pressed softly between the pages of friendship and something more. Let's burst in cadmium red, fuchsia and ultramarine, glittering shy shutterbugs flashing in the middle of the night. Bliss lived for a moment, existence our witness. Paint smattered between my peripherals, reflections of a painted sky held in your gaze with a kiss that feels like fireworks. This second piece, I'm gonna put on some YouTube instrumental. I have to say the name of the video. No, okay. I go ahead. No, okay. Uh, <laughs> it's called um, Joey Badass Old School Type Beat 2018 <laughs> by Joey May Beats. <laughs> Go and 
into a tower. Fit her in a ten-story building. Hit her head on the ceiling. Think I'm waking out. Didn't show the real me. Should I bring her out? Bring her out? Think I, think I, think I threw her out. Garbage say Sunday school. Always learn something new. Bells ring, 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 ring. Ringing in my head. Attendance call. Can't say my real name at all. Glory or gore. Mirrored in a chalkboard. Loose on this news, fruit loop eyes pop, pop, popping out of her skull. Candy like brains oozing from her nose. Sugar coated smiles when I let her go. Innocent, frivolous, time spent lavishly. Perfect when you look at me, kinda like Victoria's Secret. Ten feet tall and rickety heels, man. Give me all the feels. Wanna get messy, just a quick sashi. We'll go fish, go figure rights around your wrist. Both know it won't last for eternity. Drink that elixir like it could, spitting origami. Paper masterpieces, look at me like I lost it. Stare back at you, dumbfounded. Gin and tonic on your lips, tongue between my hips, ooh. Got real intimate, but my hips don't lie, and I don't matter. Not on the first date, at least. Not the beauty more of a beast. Grace or Sandra D look like a nice girl. Actually, never ace the spelling B. A-A-R-D-V-A-R-K. King Arthur gave me the chalice. I want a keys to the palace so I could put my feet up. Live in my mama's house. Feel like I never grew up. Head in the clouds. Room is the night down and I'll be dreaming on stars. Stars shoot my dreams on the walls constantly. So I gotta scrub, clean my dreams and put my... Pain, 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 paintings in the closet. Count them all up, all these thoughts. Racing through my head, a hundred meter dash till I see you. Oh, what's up? Nothing new. Thinking of you. Do you disapprove, prove? Proving myself worthy by getting up early. Still feeling surly when you gross me out. Hands grope the rope around my waist. Been chased since that day. Make no mistake, I'm not the takeaway dish, not miss. Take me out to a cafe booth. We can make strong eye contact and have a latte or two a little later. Don't leave me by the wayside. My insides will rot like fireflies. Burn up the sky at night in twilight fantasies. Murder mysteries always thrill me. So remember when I warned you put red flashing lights up along the route at night. When I look angry, you know you shouldn't cross me. Even with all these crooked candy teeth, I still forget how to smile sweetly. Sasha Hill, let's give her another hand. And that was Sasha Hill at the March 5th, and the journey continues open mic reading again in that monthly series, and again held at the Um Cafe. Up next in it, here is Ken Chin. Up next, Ken Chin, let's bring him up. Here's one that's pretty uh, appropriate for now. It's called Winter. Ice cold wind from almost every direction. Its howling cry never stops. Driving snow forcefully through every crack, darkened skies. Visibility is a problem. Disorientation comes easily were it not for local landmarks. A hostile environment. Exposed skin could freeze in minutes. Any creature with an instinct for survival 
but hunkered down long ago. Nature has no mercy and favors no one. A simple lesson learned. Those not ready for this are those that would die. In the face of a pummeling wind, I stumble along in the snow, struggling to keep moving. Where the wind has removed the snow, it polished the ice to perfect perfection. A trap for those tired of tramping through the snow, bundled up in a coat fit for art expedition, with the hood up and my face covered up by a scarf, it felt more like peering through the viewing slots of an armored vehicle. But this is not a trek across frozen tundra. This is downtown Kingston in the January blizzard of 2019. A blizzard of this magnitude the city has not experienced for a long, long time. While I slowly trek down snowbound streets, Queen students, protected only by the invincibility of their youth, wearing light jackets or no jackets at all, race past me at speeds that would rival Olympic sprinters on steroids. I thought about these young people running around so recklessly in the cold. I was once like them, I thought. And I wondered as I gave fi one final look at a frozen window outside my bedroom window, is this just a winter in the city or the winter of my years? Tattoos. They were always happy, those two elderly women that worked there, always chatting to each other as they restocked the shelves at the old Jewish bakery. The old Jewish bakery was an enormous bread factory. At least it was to a little boy who barely spoke English. I loved going there, especially on those cold winter mornings in Montreal back in the early 60s. You could smell fresh bread blocks away. And as you get closer, the aroma gets stronger till you enter the door and the smell of fresh baked bread and the warmth of the bakery wraps around you like a warm blanket. The Jewish community that I moved into when I first came to Canada was not a rich one, but a famous one. Mordecai Richler wrote about it in The Apprenticeship of Teddy Kravitz, a very developed community. There were synagogues, Jewish schools, and community centers, and the bakery where we got our French bread. I used to wonder why the two women in the bakery were always so happy. I wonder if those tattoos on their arms had anything to do with it. Back in those days, only sailors had tattoos. It wasn't until years later I read about the unimaginable hell they must have went through when the Nazis tattooed the numbers on them. Even today, as, as I watch current events, I'm reminded of what could happen when racism is mixed with nationalism and a strong leader of a powerful nation turns on a minority that could not fight back. And I wonder if history could repeat itself in my own backyard. The last one's called Identity. Montreal in the early 60s. Growing up wasn't easy. Ethnic working class neighborhood, struggling just to get by. With the rise of Quebecois nationalism, we were just another invasive species caught up in a Francophone fight. The boundaries between ethnicity were clear. Improvised superiority to cover up fear. The Jews were God's chosen people. Greeks started Western civilization. Francophones wanted a separate state, and the Angles were in charge of everything. But we are the hand people. I was told over and over again. They are nothing like us, and we have nothing to do with them. Look at the way they behave. Look how hairy their bodies are. A bunch of savages. More improvised superiority. 
common among minority immigrant groups. But even within the Chinese community, a people divided, right-wing nationalists on one side, the communists on the other side, alienated within a foreign land, still at each other's throat, continuing a battle, continuing a battle from the other side of the world. To make sure that we stayed Chinese, we were sent to Chinese school, located in the Chinese church, where the minister has been charged many times for falsifying records to get immigrants in illegally. While we were all working class, the minister lived in luxury. My childhood years, a process of slow indoctrination, spent entirely within the church and Chinese community. A group of evangelists from Taiwan subjected to us to their version of right-wing Christianity, where communism was the work of Satan, and Satan was trying to control the world through communism. The late 60s, the FLQ crisis, bombs in a mailbox, and the War Measures Act. My family has seen this before. In World War II, then the Communist Revolution always starts with soldiers in the streets. Then the shooting starts, and the war begins. We weren't waiting, we, we weren't waiting around this time. We bought a house in Toronto. I was sent ahead. Alone for the first time in our new home, in a new city. In Toronto, I met some very different people. They accepted me for what I was. It didn't matter if I was from another race or ethnicity. Politically, they were aligned with Lenin, John Lennon. We have one thing in common. We were all part of a new generation. They were diametrically opposed to what I was. They believed in love and called for the world to come together. They referred to women as sisters. The media called them hippies. They call themselves freaks and got me really stoned. Since then, I've never looked back. Some say I abandoned my Chinese roots, that I lost my identity. Actually, what I abandoned was mistrust, racial bias, fear, and hypocrisy. And in doing so, I found myself and ready to discover the world through new eyes. Thank you. Ken Chin, let's give him another hand. And you just heard Ken Chin at the March 5th. Uh, and the journey continues, open mic reading in that monthly series. He is the last poet I'll air today, just that all the other readings uh, were quite long, so that are left in it. And I also wanted to at least spend a few minutes with some... Uh, sharing some events and one call at least today so i will do that but first i would like to thank you i might add to there are still four four poets left in that uh, reading uh, and i'm going to try to get them worked in in the next week or two so i want to first thank you for tuning in today before i get into the uh, the one call and a few upcoming events and I want to just uh, let you know, uh, you already do, but I'm supposed to say it. Uh, you have been listening to Finding the Voice here on CFRC 101.9 FM. We are located in Lower Carruthers Hall, Queen's University, Kingston, Ontario. My name is Bruce, here every Friday afternoon from 4 to 6 o'clock. 
We do stream live online as well at www.cfrc.ca. And just another reminder, I mentioned it in the middle of the first hour, but I usually do it every hour, uh, that uh, each hour of this show each week um, will be uploaded to my blog space for it shortly after the show ends and I get home. Uh, You can find it there at Finding a Voice on cfrcfm.wordpress.com. It will remain there for four years. It will also remain on our archives for 90 days, and uh, uh, it also shows up as a podcast now. So go to, if you're on Facebook, go to that page, or just, I think you can maybe go to any anywhere you get your podcasts. Uh, and uh, I think if you type in Finding a Voice, uh, maybe Finding a Voice on the CFRC, or something like that, you should be able to pull it up. So I haven't done it yet, so I shouldn't say that. But anyway, you can find it there now as well. And I will uh, just put the plug in, too, because I've got, I'm going to read through a few of these and then a couple of recorded announcements to take us to the top of the hour. So I'm requesting that, hey, maybe stay tuned for... Uh, the show following this it is uh, two hours of East Coast music and a show called Saltwater Music hosted by Rob Carnell and that will start right at the top of the hour and again thank you for tuning in today <clears throat> okay the one call and uh, have a list of calls here most of them are uh, have a May deadline So I won't spend time with those today, but I will start really talking about those in the weeks to come because, really, May is not that far away at this point. Uh, But there is one that has actually an April 30th deadline, but I'm plugging it, I guess, a little bit uh, because uh, the publishers are expecting uh, quite a few submissions, and if... uh, they get too many uh their site says they may actually end the call a little early because they want to pay very much attention to the ones that come in so this is for uh the call is for 2019 editors reprint award it's done through sequestrum uh, literature and art uh publication and uh what they are, they, they call it a, sort of an experiment, and uh, I think they might do it annually. I don't know. Uh, but they're going, uh, it's called our Editor's Reprint Awards, and we'll award over $500 uh, to writers of fiction, nonfiction, and poetry. Each uh, genre will be judged separately. Each genre also receives prizes. And as I understand it, what they are looking for is previously published work. But why don't you go to www.sequestrum, and that is S-E-Q-U-E-S-T-R-U-M dot org, and uh, then backslash contests, and I'm I'm sure uh, you should be able to find the editor's reprint awards there with all of their submission, uh, all of their submission information and other information, so... There are, I believe I counted six events coming up this week. I hope to get through all of them here. There are two actually happening on Sunday. Uh, One is a uh, launch, Suzanne uh, Pasternak, 
Uh, we'll be doing a screening. Uh, there will be a screening of her audio documentary book, The Story of 1917, Halifax Explosion, and the Boston Tree. It says, too, it will be preceded by a short talk, a script she developed with a high school student uh, with intellectual challenges about the true story of Eunice W. Whiteley, uh, a 17-year-old spy for the Patriots during the Upper Canada Rebellion who stole a horse, was jailed in Kingston Pan and escaped. Charles Dickens actually was mesmerized by her when he toured the prison and wrote about her in American Notes. Admission is free, but donations are encouraged. This is happening this Sunday, April 7th at 2 p.m. at the Hart Center Theater, which is at 237 Wellington Street in Kingston, also happening that day at uh, the Kingston Frontenac Public Library uh, and the Central Branch, uh, now reopen. Uh, they're still calling it the Wilson Room, but I think it's Meeting Room 1 now, uh, the way it's set up. It's called an Interfaith Human Library, uh, where a number of, it's an interfaith thing, where a number of uh, people uh, come and uh, act as human books and uh, discuss with each other and uh, create a better understanding for the community. Uh, that happens, unfortunately, at the same time as the other one, but this Sunday, April 7th, from 1.30 to 4.30, again, uh, at the Kingston Frontenac Public Library's Central Branch, 130 Johnson Street. And uh, the meeting room is upstairs, uh, www.kfpl.ca. We'll get you a bit more information uh, there is a writ uh, large writing group that's uh, relatively new, uh, and uh, what it is is uh, they get together and help each uh, group of writers. So it's a writing group, and they are a monthly series. You can find them at Meetup. So uh, this is going to happen on Monday, April 8th from 530 to 8 at uh, the Mermaid Avenue Sandwich Factory, which apparently is right across the street from Heart Center, I believe, or close to it. Yeah, very similar address, 236 Wellington Street in Kingston. Tell you what, I'm just going to give you the website. You can check it out. It's quite full of information. www.meetup.com slash writ dash large should take you right to their page. Uh, Kingston Frontenac Public Library writing workshops with uh, Kingston Poet Laureate Jason Heru. Uh, they're setting those up. Uh, these are for open to anyone 14 years and older, but uh, seating is limited. Uh, it's going to, he's going to offer a workshop uh, to inspire participants to compose their own response poem to a poem they cherish. I'm going to give you their website as well, www. I already did, but I'm going to repeat it again, www.kfpl.ca. This is uh, going, going to be happening in two branches. Registration is already open, will be open, I believe, soon uh, for the later one. The one that's coming up this week is April 11th. Uh, that's Thursday from at 2 p.m., so the Kingston Front Act Public Library, Second Branch, again, 130 uh, Johnson Street. And I'm going to let it go at that because I've got to 
move on anyway. I covered most of the events coming this week. Thank you again for tuning in. You have a wonderful weekend. Catch you here next week. This podcast is produced in collaboration with CFRC.ca in Kingston, Ontario. CFRC is located on traditional Anishinaabe and Haudenosaunee territory. Infrastructure support for the CFRC podcast project is provided by the Queen's University Faculty of Engineering and Applied Science. For more information or to get involved in podcasting, visit podcasts.cfrc.ca.